Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. I'm Mindy Abair. You're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist. And I'm behind the mic today at home in San Francisco. Uh, Hello to our old diggers and hello to our new diggers on the Osiris Network. Um, So, hey. Can you drop us a line there on social? Yeah, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, Tell us what's up. Let us know how you're doing. Let us know what you like and don't like. Give us some insight. Ask us to deep dig into a subject you want to hear about. Uh, Let me tell you, we've read all that you folks send in. Uh, We may not get to it right away. Uh, I've said this before, um, and please understand Uh, But we do pay attention. We really do. And we try to incorporate as many of your ideas into our shows as possible. Uh, There are plenty of uh, diggers. In fact, hey, you know what? The Reverend Andy King, he was a digger. He came to us and said, "Uh, I'd like to do a show on movies. Uh, And I had uh, considered that myself and was like, wow, this would be great. Uh, And sure enough, Andy King, original digger, is now uh, the Real Rock host. So, hey, that could happen to you. Who knows? Come to us. Let us know what kind of uh, subject you'd like to do. You want to do a podcast? Sure. Give us a ring. You know, that's what we're all about. Uh, This is a community. This is a community-driven experiment on trying to get the full story of rock and roll uh, into uh, a coherent uh, narrative um, in, in, in kind of like a, a college-level history department, uh, if you will. Um, I think that uh, as we move further and further away from the, the 20th century, the more obvious it becomes that there was a special moment uh, in time, uh, you know, known by a general term, rock and roll, and it was really the music of the latter half of the 20th century. So you can be a part of that. You could create a show, or if you want to just uh, talk to us and comment or tell us what a great job or what a sucky job we're doing, um, please go ahead, go ahead. All right, let me add, um, you can always help us by adding a review on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. We really live on those things. Uh, it makes a big difference. Uh, you know, not to us. I mean, sure, sure, there's the, the ego stroke, but that, I'm, not, I'm not fucking talking about that. It, it's not that. It's that it, it informs other people that this may be something that they're interested in and what they might want to listen to. So it could be really helpful uh, if you can just spend the time. Hey, open your... Okay, right now. Pick out that phone. All right, open it up. Okay, do, okay, you get the code right. Okay, now uh, go to the uh, the podcast app, uh, whatever your podcast app is. All right, oh, type in rock and roll. Oh, hey, look, it's right there at the top, rock and roll archaeology. Click on that. Okay, add a review. There, now you're done. 
It's easy. It's that easy. It's that easy. So please, if you can, that would be really, uh, really nice, especially now that we've begun to pull some of the shows out of the big pipe, the where all the shows have been kind of in a magazine, uh, online uh, audio magazine format, uh, and to where uh, each of our shows will have their own feed. In fact, well, I'll have some really interesting news coming up in the next couple of weeks on what we're going to do with that. So pay attention, uh, and uh, I'll let you all know. It's it's really a, really a big deal. So uh, just uh, put something together yesterday, but it's not it's not to the point of where we're ready to announce, but we will very very show, shortly so so help us out where you can when you can hey if you want to do patreon uh you can get on patreon i know we haven't done shit on patreon that's our fault we really should uh spend some more time over there um it's probably it, it, it it's on the the back burner it's definitely something that we need to pay attention to but um you know just know that you may not be getting a lot except a bunch of great content uh through the patreon uh, uh pledge but uh, if you can, uh, we would appreciate it. All right, all right. Okay, here's here is the news. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Pamela DeBar has arrived on Pantheon Podcast with a new show that is pure Pamela. Yeah, please go listen to Miss Pamela's Pajama Party and let us know what you think. In her first episode, uh, she introduces us to herself and her dear friend from the GTO girls together outrageously days, Miss Mercy. Well, let me tell you, they go deep and between the sheets, reminiscing about their shared past and uh, separate past in the hot spots of uh, Hollywood uh, uh, rock and roll scene of the late 1960s and early 1970s. And uh, it, it's all fun and all female. These ladies are just unafraid and willing to go there and there was a lot so we are so excited to give miss pamela a platform to define you know what a groupie is there's, there's so many people who think it's one thing or 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 if it, it, you know it should be shunned or or you know it's 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 female empowerment in the grandest form um and you know you know what she's one of the best ever uh, and why Others should feel willing to go and be themselves just like her. And that's really what it is. That's more than anything else. It's unapologetically be yourself. And if you love something and want to do something, you should feel uh, proud of going out there and, and doing that. You know, rock and roll is about freedom, uh, the freedom to be yourself, the freedom to express it in the manner, whatever the fuck that might be, that you feel. Okay, all right, off the soapbox. Yeah, I, I tend to do this like every week now. Okay, diggers, that is the housekeeping this week. So why don't we get to the show and meet our special guest? So last, uh, well, so the last few weeks, 
We've been discussing the latter era of rock and roll with uh, shows centered on uh, the alt-rock 90s uh, and punk scenes. Uh, Lots of fun and, you know, critical moments to be sure. Uh, And I just want to remind everyone before we get started that this show always is about the entire spectrum of the music and the times. Uh, We do not discriminate. We want to learn and expose every facet of the story. Um, In the end, er every genre will be represented, every movement, every era, local, hell, hopefully every band that at least mattered a little should be a part of the full story. So um, this week, we are going back to the beginning. In fact, uh, the primordial days of rock and roll, back before it was called rock and roll. I'm talking about the folk group, The Weavers, uh, one of the true precursors to what became rock and roll. Some of you will know them from your childhood, or if you begin to backtrack, um, you know, the journeys of like Dylan, the Birds and others of the mid 60s folk revival era, you'll remember them. And some may know them uh, being blacklisted in the 1950s after Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes were forced to testify to the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Uh, interestingly, uh, Pete pled the First Amendment and Lee the Fifth. And we'll we'll find out how that uh, served uh, them uh, when they did so and, and the aftermath. Um, well, there is a lot uh, to the story of uh, the aforementioned Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes, along with Fred Hellerman and Ronnie Gilbert of the original members, and then the iterations after Seeger left the group with Eric Darling, uh, Frank Hamilton, and Bernie Krause. Uh, a lot, a lot to the story. And it's all in the new book, Wasn't that a time? The Weavers, the Blacklist, and the Battle for the Soul of America by our guest today, Jesse Jarno. Jesse tells the full tale of this mid-20th century folk group that had an impact on the future rockers, uh, at least to those who paid attention and felt the music could do more than just entertain. It could inform, educate. Jesse Jarno is the author of Heads, a biography of psychedelic America and Big Day Coming, Yola Tango and the Rise of Indie Rock. Uh, he's written for Wired, Rolling Stone, New York Times. He also has a radio show going for, uh, for like 25 years, I think, uh, called the Fro the Frau Show, excuse me, the Frau Show on WFMU in Jersey City. And <clears throat> it can be found online as well. All right, so let's get into the Weaver's full story. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Jesse Jarnow. <laughs> Come on the sloop, John B., my grandfather and me. Round Nassau town, we did wrong. Drinking all night, we got into a fight. I feel so break up. Welcome to Deeper Digs and Rock, Jesse Jarno. How are you doing today? Doing 
great. Thank you so much for having me. Really yeah. appreciate it. Oh, we, you know, we, we, we're really excited to have you and uh, talk uh, about uh, this book. Uh, wasn't that a time? The Weavers, the Blacklist, and the Battle uh, for the Soul of America. Um, you know, uh, uh, I, uh, I I have a, a, a great understanding and expertise in the music of the latter half of the 20th century, but I I don't have a lot uh, in the uh, first part of the of the century. Although I'm getting sucked into more and more of that. Um, uh, and it's, uh, you know, one leads to the other. So it's obvious that, that, you know, we would be going down that rabbit hole sooner or later. Right. Right. <laughs> of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm in, in a lot of ways, um, very much like that as well. I, you know, I grew up, um, in the eighties and nineties listening, listening to music from that era, but you know, like a lot of people for uh, of my age, digging back into the music of the sixties and, and, and the seventies and kind of, you know, sort of putting together my picture of, of musical history. Um, but even before that, my, you know, so the, uh, the Weavers and Pete Seeger were, were the music that my mom played for me, uh, especially when oh, I was really? growing oh, up. Oh, okay. So yeah, okay. you were very well, familiar with them as, from from familial yeah, uh, reasons. But, okay. But in, a, but in a musical way and only sort of tangentially in a political and social way. I mean, not – I mean, I very much – knew their progressive inclinations that was an extremely important part of listening to them and in my household but not necessarily like the details of the red scare and kind of the ups and downs of the weavers career things like that the weavers for me was you know music i could sing along to as as a little kid and that's why i fell in love with it it was it was yeah, perfect for yeah that. yeah um, even today you could do that but before right. we dive too deep into that oh, yeah. first let, let's talk about having your own podcast uh what? tell the diggers what alternate roots is all about which is the name of your podcast right oh yeah alternate roots is my podcast of music that's not on spotify basically i'm i'm a big believer in independent music and you know the very notion of independent music of you know indie rock or whatever has really changed fundamentally in the last 20 years what oh, the entire music in, yeah, in industry in general has changed and or well, as we like right. to call disrupted over the last 20 years yes but especially what it means to be independent in the context of the music industry where suddenly there's this one filter that it seems like everybody is going through as opposed to you know going to your going to even a chain record store like you know different versions of tower records had different things in stock yeah, but, depending on the geographic location, right, right. Yeah, so whenever when when the vast majority of listening is all going through this one portal, you know, the notion of independent suddenly to me becomes what's outside of that, and that's what alternate roots is about. Just this notion that there's this whole enormous musical soundscape outside of you know the bounds of of Spotify, yeah. and um, you know, it's endlessly rewarding for me to explore things like little do-it-yourself seven-inch releases or live recordings of bands or, you know, one-off demos that people have posted on SoundCloud. And to me, it's a much richer picture of the musical world than, than just sort of everything through the same interface. And that's sort of the, the goal is to kind of like, you know, make it a more diverse musical place. Well, we kind of eliminated all the gatekeepers uh, with the with the last uh, iteration of the music business. And, um, you know, now there's a plethora, uh, an embarrassment of riches, if you will, uh, of music. It, the hard part now is trying to find something that, you know, strikes a chord within, within you. Right. Which is what sort of, to me, kind of reaffirms 
sort of why I'm doing what I'm doing, why I'm excited to be a music writer and to, you know, discover stuff and, and, and share it and communicate that. And because there's, it's so much more chaotic out there, you know, it's not a monoculture and that's amazing. That's yeah, yeah. fantastic. But I, I love navigating it. It's, you know, it's this it's enormous never ending jungle. And, and to me, in some ways, Spotify feels like a little snow globe of that when there's kind of this vast ecosystem out there that, that can't be contained. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, I, I know they and, and some of the other streaming services like Pandora, you know, everybody's trying to kind of follow the Netflix model of, you know, an algorithm that will guarantee that if you like this, you're going to like that. Uh, and yeah. nobody's been able to do that yet, certainly with music. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, uh, uh, let's face it, the choices are far greater exponentially than they are from a, a TV uh, platform, kind of like Netflix. So uh, I know that's a big deal. So now uh, the podcast uh, is on the Osiris uh, Network, right? It is. It is. It is. Uh, I'm sort of floating between seasons right now. I've been mired in, in deadlines and other projects, but hopefully we'll start organizing a, a second season uh, soon enough. Yeah, in fact, this show and uh, subsequently this interview will also be on the Osiris Network. But if you're listening from another platform, go and check out the shows over there. Okay, so you are also a DJ uh, with a show called The Fro Show, right? Frau Show. Frau. Frau. Yeah, yeah. Frau. I thought Fro Show. Frau. Yeah. I'm from the West Coast, never heard it, but it's in uh, WFMU on, in New York, right? Yeah, uh, Jersey City. It's uh, we're a long, long-running, free-form, non-commercial radio station, um, almost entirely listener-supported. You know, on the air, but also at uh, WFMU.org. Uh, every program since 2001 on the station is archived on the web, including uh, all 10 years of the Frau Show, or all 10 years of this incarnation of the Frau Show. I should say the Frau Show is actually a uh, podcast before that and before that it was on a pirate radio station and before that it was on a college radio station and before that it was on a closed circuit thing masquerading as a radio station at my high school so <laughs> wow so you're you're very dedicated to the frau show here oh yeah the, the, the title the name of the show is a convoluted in joke that is <laughs> too convoluted to to explain right now but the the short version is a friend of mine wrote a theme song for it back in high school and once I had a theme song, I just sort of had to stick with it. So, <laughs> the theme, if you tune into if you tune into the show, the theme the theme song, you know, still still prominently played every week. Wow! Oh, well, I hope uh, I hope your friends getting the royalties off that. <laughs> <laughs> so, both on air frequencies and online, you can find the Frown Show. So, can you tell us something about it? Is there is there a, a oh, you know a theme yeah, that well, goes through the whole thing? Or well, so the it's a freeform radio show and a freeform radio station. So the idea, I guess, is that I'm playing a lot of new music. I guess that's one part of it. But I also do a lot of on-air sound collaging. Like, I really like this notion that live radio is something very different from Spotify or different even from listening to records at home. So, you know, there are times pretty much every show where I'll have, you know, all three turntables going, something coming out of CD players, probably, you know, playing something weird off my computer and you know it's it's improvisation and there's usually like probably like an hour of that sometimes more sometimes less um in the middle of all of the shows where you know i kind of have this pile of things and i know they're going to kind of blend together you know bells and bird songs and people reading things from plays or you know whatever um and i but i have no idea how they're going to like 
stack up or what it's going to sound like or anything like that and just kind of work my way through it. So that that's, you know, one of the things that keeps me really excited and engaged every week is is besides, you know, using it as an excuse to discover new music every week, but going in and, and sort of making this sort of, you know, live three hour extended piece of music out of smaller things is is really, really fun. <laughs> yeah, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things in the world. Jesse, you just explained a fish show. So it's basically a fish well, show. Well, you know, maybe, <laughs> yeah, well, or, you know, in some ways, I, I have to admit, I'm also talking about a dead show, which is kind of yeah, where yeah, that structure yeah. comes from for me. I, I guess it's probably won't be a huge shock to say I'm a huge deadhead, but, um, you know, the, the, the idea of structure going to chaos and back to structure is really, you know, yeah. is, is an oh. amazing musical progression. Yeah. But I've also really tried to, um, that became fairly formulaic for them over the years. And I've really tried to, you know, not fall into doing exactly the same sort of formula like that every time. So, you know, sometimes starts in chaos, sometimes not. Who knows? Yeah, right, I'll, right, I'll, I'll right. figure it out when I get to the station. All right. Well, everybody, go turn in, tune into the Frau Show uh, on <laughs> WFMU if you're in the New Jersey, New York, uh, the tri-state area, I guess you might say. And, yeah. uh, and of course, uh, online. Uh, and that can be found where again? Uh, WFMU.org. There you go. All right. And you are a writer. Uh, yeah. with numerous articles uh, and uh, and two books under your belt now, one of which will... Three. Three books, three books. Three oh, books. what's the third book? Uh, I, I I know Big Day Coming. Uh, okay. and Big Day Coming. Uh-huh. Uh, there's uh, Head's Biography of Psychedelic America, oh. uh, which is my, my book about uh, sort of the world of psychedelics and the Grateful Dead and the counterculture. And mm-hmm. then there's uh, my new one, which is about the Weavers. That's right. Um, and actually, <laughs> I wrote several uh, several children's books, uh, educational children's books on under contract before that, which you can also find online about such topics as Johnny Bench and, and Mark Twain and socialism and, and a few other things. Oh, okay. A children's <laughs> book on socialism. Um, that it I was, have to see. Part of it. Part of it is part of a series of books on political systems. Um, it's that's actually a fantastic segue into the Weaver socialism. It, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. I, yeah. I mean that, you know, <laughs> like you know, Lee, Lee Hayes from the Weavers um, said, you know, this is I'm not going to get this quote entirely right, but you know, I'm, I'm some sort of socialist. I've spent my entire life trying to figure out which kind. Um, oh, that's uh, that's from uh, from from uh, Lee Hayes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so how did you get the passion of music that obviously infects your entire being? Pete Seeger. I mean, really, it's, it's, it really, it really is Pete Seeger from the Weavers and pe- being played uh, uh, to you as a child. Yeah. So you know, the Weavers and Pete Seeger. You know, their their world. It's like. I mean, it is like the dead in the sense that it's participatory. That was really the thing. They yeah, they encourage that uh, in their shows and the sing-alongs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and part of the thing about singing along, you know, going to show, going to a show and singing along, is that it sort of pulls you into this world where there's, you know, you're part of it somehow. And the Weavers and Pete Seeger are just my my really my very very earliest you know memories of. of being a music fan, um, give or take, you know, my parents singing lullabies to me. Probably the first set lists I ever kept. Um, yeah, that the they were the Weavers were the first band where I could name all four band members, you know, that kind of thing. And you know, not that I really had any sense of who they were, like as people, or like you know, like there there wasn't a book to read about them. I couldn't go to the library and just read a book about the Weavers. Yeah. Um, and you never saw them in Circus Magazine, no, that's for sure. <laughs> 
But that is exactly what made me a music fan. I knew all the words to all of those songs. Um, I don't know how many times I saw Pete Seeger as a kid. You know, he was playing all the time in the New York area. He would be playing at schools and libraries and concerts and things. Yeah, he lived up the the latter part of his life up the Hudson River, right? Yeah, lived most of his. Most of, he moved there in uh, like nineteen. 19- 50 right as the weavers oh, no okay that right as the weavers were starting 49 or 48 or something mm-hmm. um so he you know he was the first you know the way that later i got into like the dead and you know fish and other bands and like keeping up with them but he was like the first artist that i would like go see in different venues all over the place and you know just because that's where my mom was taking me to see him um but that i think is really what sparked my enthusiasm for music it, it has to be you know or really i guess my mom and my dad is is, is probably you know more accurate in some ways and then maybe age six or seven somewhere real young um i saw yellow submarine the beatles movie and discovered the beatles and i wouldn't say i entirely forgot about pete seeger and the weavers and folk music but that sent me way (laughs) you know that sent me that sent me to where i am now yeah yeah uh it's almost like uh february 9th 1964 Uh, there's so many people i've talked to that you know the world is black and white and then the next night it's color you know uh so and it's it's interesting you may you you mentioned yellow submarine which is you know well, yeah <laughs> i mean it's funny how i mean it's funny how that beatles moment like gets replicated beyond that initial ed sullivan thing like my my friend's kids are you know getting into the beatles now and like they're still having that moment <laughs> like it's it's great. Yeah, I I, I you know I, I can say one of my earliest uh, uh, memories of music and you know wanting to know more what what did that mean uh, was the day the Beatles broke up. I I was born in the early '60s and you know it, you know that when the news came over because you know the, there's no real official date of uh, of the Beatles breakup, but but you know the news was like oh yeah there this is it it's done. I I had um, older siblings and you know that like this was a like it was like a death you know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. like oh what is, what does that mean? Uh, so yeah, I, I think uh, uh, a lot of people uh, even uh, to your point even today um there's that moment when they uh discover the beatles and they they tend right. to remember that for the rest of their lives so yeah that was really the beginning of me being interested in the history of music beyond just the songs i was hearing i have a little bit of memory of part of this story but not this is one that's more told by my parents than me but um this was right around the time that i was like starting to be able to read so i want to know more about the beatles my mom takes me to the library and we take out like every book that has anything like about the Beatles, like a rock encyclopedia. There's like an, an ent- I don't even remember which one it was, but it had like, you know, an entry on the Beatles. We took that out. And apparently, you know, I at some point, you know, precociously asked my dad, like, Dad, were the Beatles high on acid when they made Sergeant Pepper? It was something like that. And, you know, he was like, yeah, probably. Well, yes, kid. Yes. As a matter of fact, um, you know, it's a little early uh, for you, but uh, we'll get to that uh, at a later date. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty much the talk, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, tell us, um, you know, let's get into Wasn't That a Time? Uh, yeah. Why Why do a book on the Weavers um, at this time? Yeah, well, there are, you know, a few reasons. So, like I said, they were one of my favorite bands. So I, I was already thinking about writing something about them like yeah i can imagine that yeah yeah i was just thinking about writing something about them after i'd finished uh my previous book but it also didn't really quite seem they didn't seem current at all there was like 
this was this was uh, mid 2016. And then the election happened and suddenly they're horribly, awfully, terribly relevant again. And I Fas- fascism on the rise and all that. Yeah, and it, that was sort of what solidified it. Uh, there's the great documentary was all with the same name, wasn't that a time by by Jim Brown? Which uh, you know, to go back, one you know, one of my very earliest musical memories is my parents taking me to see that in a movie at a movie theater in the city in Manhattan. I grew up on Long Island. Well, wow, your parents were serious fans. Yeah, my parents were folkies. They, uh, my dad was at all three Newport folk fe- or not all three, but he was at the '63, '64, '65 Newport ones, yeah, festivals yeah. With, yeah. with Dylan. Yeah, um, you know, my mom was raised on folk music as well. You know, you know, they're 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 heads. My parents are music heads, so yeah, they and and raised me to be a music fan. Like that, you know, music was always it was important for them for music to be a central part of my life and our lives. So that was um Well they must be very proud that you didn't go out and get a corporate job. They really are. (laughs) (laughs) Every every member of my family I come from the most supportive creative family I could possibly think of. I couldn't be anywhere doing this without without that. Um anyway, so after the 2016 election um, I started thinking about the Weavers again, and my uh, my girlfriend and I uh, watched wasn't at a time. I hadn't seen it probably in full since I was real little, and it was really inspiring. It just felt really good and comforting to hear their voices and to to see them singing. You know, Lee Hayes, who's who's the other senior Weaver, along with Pete Seeger, um, was you know he's sort of the the MC of the group or sort of the really the humor of the group. Um, and when we were watching the movie, it was, you know, I realized that the movie was filmed like late November 1980, like Thanksgiving 1980 was the reunion. And I realized that that was only weeks after uh, the Ronald Reagan election, after Ronald Reagan defeated Jimmy Carter. And there's this quote from from Lee Hayes in the movie where he says, you know, I just want to remind you all this too shall pass and he pauses. You know, I've had kidney stones and I should know. <laughs> um, and it was just this like. That that was his humor right there, yeah. Yeah, so. and and Lee died just a few few weeks after that show, right? He died in, in eighty one, but it just felt like this like intergenerational cosmic wink from Lee that you know came at, you know things can be okay, but there's still there's still the work as they say. Yeah, and on one hand, there's all these you know one e- one real easy way to to say it is that you know. There's all these awful parallels between what was going on in the McCarthy Red Scare 50s and what's going on now in, you know, the era of he who shall not be named. And <laughs> this is this is sort of how I, I, I prefer to think about it is that it's not just parallels. It's just it's continuity the, you know, there's been this divide down the middle of American culture. You see it. it it's the Civil War. It's the Red Scare. It, there's just always this, you know, battle. You know, it's it's in the '60s. It's, it's it's in Ronald Reagan. It's in every. You know, you, it's there. It's always there. Oh, I I think it's been there since the inception of this country. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, exactly. I personally think we ought to saw off uh, the Mason Dixon line and let the other <laughs> half go. So, but well, just me. That we would, if we did that, we wouldn't have had Lee Hayes and the Weavers. Um, oh, they can immigrate. That's fine. We yeah. we will take uh, those poor aliens. Uh, no problem. 
it was exactly what Lee Hayes did. Lee Hayes grew up in the deep, deep South in the early part of the 20th century. His dad was a minister. It was a very repressive society. And he, you know, he... Yeah, Jim Crow. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into that a little bit with, with Lee and Pete. As you said, uh, you know, kind of the senior figures of... Uh, of the group uh, with Fred Hellerman and Ronnie Gilbert uh, coming in a little bit later. In fact, uh, Lee and Pete actually started with, uh, uh, was it the Almanac Singers first? Is that yeah, right? The yeah. Almanac Singers is where they came together uh, for the first time in like 1940, mm -hmm. late 1940, early 1941. But I disrupted. Please tell us, tell us a little bit about Lee Hayes and then oh, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get, yeah, we'll get into a little bit about Pete Seeger as well. This will tie perfectly back into Pete Seeger and the Almanac Singers. Um, yeah, Lee, like I said, Lee grew up in the deep, deep South, and um, he he taught. He was, as he says, he was radicalized working at the Cleveland Public Library as a as a page, where he started reading all the books that were. Uh, can't remember what the mark was, but you know, some book. Oh, that, for you minors, uh, you, um, uh, you, you weren't appropriate for minors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty pretty close to banning it, but not exactly. Right, would be reading like Upton Sinclair and things mm -hmm. like that. And he said that was, you know, that was how he became a socialist and connected up with uh, this radical Presbyterian minister, Claude Williams, and eventually made his way to New York with the goal of creating a songbook uh, of, you know, social music. Of, it wasn't quite called protest music yet. And, and this is in the 1930s. This is in like really like 1939, 1940, um, when he's starting to make his way up to New York. He's, he was uh, very involved. Still deep in the Depression. Oh, yeah, extremely. Um, and uh, makes his way to New York with a, the idea of creating the songbook and pretty quickly runs into Pete Seeger. Somebody introduces them. Um, and uh, who, and Pete, at that point, is that's exactly his goal as well, is to is to create the songbook um, of, of labor songs and union songs and, and zipper songs is what they call them. You know, songs that could be like um, they were sort of modular. You could kind of throw in any cause you wanted and, and have them work. And they discovered that they could sing together and they started um, modifying songs and writing songs and, and performing really for socialist and communist and just progressive left wing causes around New York. And this is uh, this is before World War Two. And I guess this is, you know, another thing that's uh, worth talking about is that the, the left in that era was just this enormous, enormous spectrum of ideas and beliefs and parties and sub parties and and and. <laughs> It was especially in New York. Oh, Will Rogers. Uh, I, I don't belong to any organized uh, political party. I'm a Democrat. Well, <laughs> something like that. Right. So Pete uh, Seeger was, in fact, uh, a communist. Lee, you know, maybe went to a couple meetings. But as as we'll probably talk about, he was sort of a to hang out and find the, the good uh, the good drink and the good women. Right. Yeah, probably not the good women, the good drinks, <laughs> yes. Uh, but he was sort of an argumentative type, Lee. Um, not really an organization man. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, he was, you know, eventually subpoenaed, um, but definitely also almost certainly never a real member of the Communist Party. Right. Uh, but, anyway, but, so, but they started this group called the Almanac Singers. And the idea was that they were going to sort of sing the news. And the news for the Almanac Singers was sort of was the Communist Party line or, or, or the general perspective of what was going on from the the far communist left wing left wow that's a bad phrase um <laughs> and real quickly into the into the beginning of the almanac singers they they meet up with uh, pete's friend who is a young songwriter named woody guthrie who moved back to new york abandoning his family and um 
joined the Almanac Singers, and he already had a pretty good reputation as someone who would, you know, could, you know, write a song at a moment's notice or tear apart another song or, you know, just, you know, he was Woody Guthrie. He, he had this gift for repurposing things and, and also coming up with his own stuff. And he was sort of the, the spark that that really got under them, that, that made them realize that they could make songs of their own or take old songs and just do whatever they wanted with them. And they kind of achieved this notoriety around New York and around in, in left-wing circles. Um, they put out a, uh, a 78 that's extremely controversial that, and, you know, none of their names are on it. Even the record company won't put its, their name on it. Um, this is all in the run-up to World War II where there's kind of these shifting allegiances between... Um, yeah, they're kind of isolationists. Uh, yeah. They, 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 they kind of follow the uh, uh, Charles Lindbergh side of, uh, yeah, of the political they, process at that time. Stay out of the war. Which was, you know, the Communist Party line because at the time, uh, Communist Russia had a pact with Nazi Germany. and That was a mistake, but okay. <laughs> yeah, and you do see these traces of, like, they know that it's kind of, this is not a good thing. That they This is like, eh, but they're kind of doing it anyway. And it totally, you know, very quickly, as soon as, as soon as that pact goes away like yeah it's funny they they don't change because of uh december 7th 1941 they change right. when hitler invades uh the soviet union yeah june june of that year i think mm -hmm. something uh june of 42 yeah yeah exactly and um they realize simultaneously like oh man we have to <laughs> none of we can't sing any of our songs anymore but also you know this is going to cause trouble and it it does real very quickly. And so that is kind of the opening note of discord in, in sort of the weavers versus the government is the, the existence of this record uh, is, is the ballad of October 16, I think is the name that is, is this central thing like J Edgar Hoover of the FBI is like trying to track yeah. down. Yeah. Pricks up their ears and says, who these oh, oh, right. are. Yeah. And that's, you know, the beginning of Pete Seeger's FBI file, which I read in the course of, of doing this, which is like 10,000 pages or something like that. It was a lot. There's a lot of redundancy. So it's definitely a lot of fast forwarding. And this starts like in about 1943. Right. And he and he is he is in the army at the time. Isn't yeah, that when he so, first gets yeah. noticed uh, by the well, FBI? They, they actually get noticed. The, the Almanac singers get noticed before yeah. that. But he first gets noticed as as an individual, as Pete Seeger within Basically, weeks of enlisting in the army. That's that's right. Uh, when when the Japanese internment camps were starting, and he he wrote a letter of protest, as you should. Yeah, you know that is a terrible thing. And he was married to a half Japanese woman, uh, yeah, right? Well, as it happened, he was dating a, a woman who is uh, who is who is half Japanese, um, and and married her within months of that as well. And while he was still in the army, but you know, which shouldn't have anything to do with with saying that this is a bad thing. But he did, and the letter very quickly made it back to his superiors, and immediately he's starting to get investigated, and there's this whole, you know, this is where my book starts. There's this, you know, whole chunk of, of, the, of the Army, like, special services, like, investigating him and going to interview his associates in New York, um, like, you know, the people who used to book the Almanac Singers, and they're, like, trying to piece together the, the story of, of who the Almanac Singers were in this era of, of spotty information and, you know, and hearsay and it, it's scary and depressing to read through that but it's also you know there's also sort of a keystones cop element to it where it is kind of funny that they're you know going to interview woody guthrie and going to interview you know max gordon who who owned the village vanguard and it's you know it's 
seeing history unfold in real time. Unfortunately, all... those people were very serious at the time. They weren't yeah. taking this lightly. They didn't think of themselves as the, as the Keystone Cops. I mean, it's it's crazy. But at the same time, you see in like the Max Gordon interview that Max Gordon, who on the Village Vanguard does see them as kind of the Keystone Cops. There's this moment where they're like questioning about, oh, like, who's this Woody Guthrie guy? And, he's, and Max's answer is, well, he's a best-selling author. Go read Bound for Glory, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it's, you know, Woody Guthrie was not, a, you know, he. that's another point is that at the same time the Almanac singers were going on, Woody Guthrie became a national figure because he had a, a best-selling, you know, it's hard to... It, article and a memoir but it, yeah a book <laughs> let's call it stick with book yeah yeah so that that is, I, I love that moment it's, of it's crazy Gordon. it's like oh, oh look at the new york times bestseller list <laughs> so do you, i mean do you really think music can hold that much power to cause a political system to fear its very existence mm, yeah. yes <laughs> yes because when you say a political system fearing its very existence you're talking about the people who are working within that political system <laughs> I'm not completely convinced that music could then bring down the political system. I'm convinced it can scare people in power, though, if it's performed in the right way via the right platform. You know, a lot of that is timing, but a lot more of that is, you know, knowing what you're doing and or <laughs> maybe not fully knowing what you're doing, but having a pretty good sense of what you're doing. And that was what the Almanac singers were doing. And it worked like that record that they made made its way to the White House like FDR basically had to be talked off a ledge of like trying to have them arrested. You know, that's power. That's power. Yeah. 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 It's in real time, in real time. I, you know, I, I you know, I think we can agree that there are, uh, you know, plenty of songs that uh, have, um, you know, arrived uh, into the public consciousness that do uh, affect the people. But I, 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 I think, I, I think it's more of a, a, a slow burn, a, a, a longer yeah. form. Uh, it, you know, it's not literally going to make people, you know, grab pitchforks and torches <laughs> and, and, and head to Pennsylvania Avenue. I, no, I just can't not. can't ever see that being the case. You know, there's too much of having a good time involved, uh, and it's a and it's a it's a momentary passion. Um, you know, but it makes you think. And over the the slow burn, you know, it probably can help change your views uh, in life. I know it certainly did for me, and I and I bet you would say the same thing for you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, one of the things that I sort of came back to or came to, you know, this I hadn't maybe formulated this thought before before diving into the into the research and writing of this book is that people talk about protest songs and, you know, protest music. And to me, that's sort of a hollow way of thinking about it. It's, you know, maybe kind of a commodification of the idea or something like that, where that it can be boiled down to like a song as a weapon for an individual cause. But you're, yeah, the, the idea of slow burn is, is way more applicable. You know, music, music is a, is a weapon. Like I, I agree with that, but I, I think of it. Yeah. In that bigger way, like I think of it as an organizing tool, like it, you know, music builds communities. That's, you know, that I don't think anybody can possibly say that it doesn't. Oh, that's very true. Very true. And I think once you recognize that, a community has something in common that goes beyond just the songs that they that they share. I think that, you know, yeah, and, and, you know, certainly not every musical community has that shared thing where you can make that pivot that there's, you know, some kind of, you know, really bigger, grander thing that ties them all together. But I think most organic music communities, you probably can find that pivot there. 
And that's the thing. That's what draws people together over in the extreme short term, meaning like a single individual concert where you're there singing along and, you know, in the immediate part of the community, but also just in the long term, you know, a lifetime of music listening and concert going or not even concert going, show going. Concert is, is way too formal, I think, for most real musical communities. Um, and, I, you know, that's where those bonds are deepened. And that's where, you know, that's also the the, the place where things can be activated in, in all kinds of surprising ways that aren't, you know, it's hard to plan. Like, that's the thing about you, you can't. You can't. I, I, I think it's educational. It, it's very educational, uh, you know, but but I, I've never seen a musical movement um, really, you know, take to the streets and really, you know, change the, the politics. It, it's very informative, uh, f- especially for those who take the time to, you know, listen carefully and think about it. The, you know, so much of it is, like I said, sort of the timing of things and the platform and sort of just all these other circumstances where, where oftentimes the songs themselves and the performances themselves are almost incidental. And... I wouldn't say that the Weavers or Pete Seeger made people take to the streets with pitchforks in that kind of way. But I do see music as social movement. Do people do take to the streets? It's always a part of it. It is definitely always a, a part of, 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 you know, when, when a large group gets together and they want to protest, um, there's almost always song involved. Yeah. And I do think, uh, you know, growing up, the 60s was very much this idea of like for the way it was presented at the time to me was like, oh, these, you know, these songs, like these greatest hits, like you listen to the Woodstock greatest hits or Jimi Hendrix's greatest hits or or whatever. But there was, you know, the, the fact that it was this enormous social movement with people literally spilling out into the streets, you know, dancing, tripping, all that kind of stuff. And I do see that as ultimately being transformative on the American political body. You know, not always in positive ways, but you no. See... In fact, it actually transformed into Nixon uh, first, and then Reagan in in 1980. Yeah, but I also see it transforming Americans, American political body in in sort of deeper, slower burn kind of ways. Which I, to me, I see sort of a lot of you see manifestations of like sort of the baby boomer counterculture in in kind of the roots of Silicon Valley. Yeah. And this yeah, idea of, mm-hmm. of, of economic libertarianism and all, you know, mm-hmm. these, these kind of things that sort of push into what we, you know, <laughs> this other modern dystopia we have um, online. But you see those 60s triggered countercultural transformations, I think, a lot of places. And it's, it's really, it is part of the American fabric. And I do see it rooting back in a lot of ways to kind of that sort of moment in the 60s where music was, there and, it, and you know you couldn't have that moment without that music but you also couldn't have it without the psychedelics and you know the art and the, the whole thing you know and that's all of these things are different models for how that can happen right like you know the weavers are one way that music can engage with the culture at large and sort of become part of a conversation the 60s and the, the, the grateful dead and the counterculture are another way that can happen but you know it, it's infinite and that's what makes that's why music is still so vital is that there you don't know what the next way that that's going to happen you know there's going to be some crashing combination of of social issues and interesting music and coming out of a, a fascinating place you know you, maybe that's a virtual place maybe that's not a physical place who knows but to me that's why the weavers are still relevant now is because this is one way that it happened 
in society, despite all the technological changes, there's still clearly the same underlying messed up stuff, but also really great stuff that to me, there's a continuity between all of these like bursts of social music or organizing music or whatever you want to call it. Like there are, there's a thread between all of this stuff. And that's kind of one of the things that I'm just endlessly fascinated by. Well, tell us about working on the book. I understand there's a, a, a lot of unreleased documents and even recordings you got your hands on. Yeah, that oh man, that's the the super fun part of it is is figuring all of that out, right? So, um, one of my goals really was to try to find primary documents to talk about all four band members to like really try to like you know Pete Seeger is the one who you know I'm not actually sure he might be on a postage stamp, but if not, he should be, you know. But he's the one people know. But yeah. I really the, the Weavers were, <laughs> and you're right, if he is not on a postage stamp yet, he will soon be. I guarantee you that. The we but the Weavers were a band, not not with this administration. Administration, but in future administrations, definitely. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to make sure that all of the all four weavers were represented, and like you know, as I was sort of learning, you know, kind of refamiliarizing myself with the story, that was one thing that became clear is that it was they were all really very much equal members of that ensemble, including after Pete Seeger left, when when Eric Darling replaced him. Eric Darling was also considered a a full on just equal member of the ensemble. I'm not sure the later banjo players were, uh, but anyway, so I really wanted to have everybody there. So for Pete Seeger, his FBI file is actually online. There's like I mentioned before so that's you know it's not exactly unseen but i bet <laughs> i bet i'm one of the few people who've gone through all ten thousand pages of it so that sort of counts right <laughs> as unseen uh lee hayes his documents are uh, at the smithsonian all of his letters or the vast majority of his letters um and documents are online um and kind of an not super excellent interface, but all very highly readable. And again, I'm probably, I can't imagine that many people have gone through all of those. That was another really important thing in terms of piecing together sort of the day-to-day -day life of the Weavers. Um, worth mentioning here also, all four of the Weavers were extremely literate and uh, letter writers. And for a lot of the career, they lived in different places. So a lot of their business was conducted by mail and a lot of their arguments were conducted by mail. And they're all very articulate. All four Weavers, just their personalities just pop out of these letters. It's it was really it was just every single letter that I could lay my hands on or my eyes on from any of them. It was just so cool seeing the hotel stationery that they were on, you know, like, you know, a lot of these letters are on, you know, like, you know, hotel stationery or when they were touring in Europe. You, these are all scanned in. Um, you can see that he's writing on like thin airmail paper. You know, it's like you really have this very textural look at the era. Um, but then the two, well, there were actually more than two. There were a few chunks of things that I, I was able to get my hands on or, you know, get in front of that are definitely not public yet. One of them was uh, Ronnie Gilbert's archive. Uh, Ronnie, unfortunately, all four weavers passed away before I could be writing this book, so I didn't get to talk to any of them directly for this. Uh, Ronnie wrote her memoir maybe 10 years before she died, something like that, um, which is a great book as well. But when she did that, she organized all of her letters, which she had kept, and she was, you know, a voluminous correspondent, and did a, a really good job. Like, you know, Weaver's Business, 1956, you know, personal oh, well-organized. Yeah, and, you know, if not quite chronological, enough to, like, for me to really be able to, like, I didn't have to do that much sorting to kind of, like, get myself grounded. Um, Her daughter, uh, Lisa, has them. Who She lives in uh, in Northern California on the coast. So I went to go visit Lisa for a few days and, and go through all these papers, uh, which were, oh, my 
I mean, just amazing, like getting to hold these things. And, you know, like I said, like the different textures of things of, you know, postcards or airmail paper or journals, you know, notebooks, just everything. It's just you I got a really tangible, physical sense of, of this stuff, which is something I did try to, you know, get across, like sort of the textures of the era. The 50s are definitely not my, you know, natural historical territory. And I think that a lot of people sort of think of them as a, a very black and white decade because of the way that TV and film uh, represent them. But I, I really wanted to kind of like... Yeah, co- convey it in full color, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, just animated in a way that, that maybe wasn't otherwise done. So let's see, a connecting point, I'll start with Ronnie. Um, another chunk of things that was in her archive that was incredible to see and almost felt too intimate uh, were her papers from when she was a, a very early LSD therapy patient in like 1962, 1963, 1964, but you know, before LSD was illegal, obviously hanging out with Ken Kesey, uh, not Kesey. She was, uh, she was, uh, she was an East coaster. It was probably around the time Kesey was getting into acid. So not, she... not, not MK ultra, but more on the therapeutic side, yeah, uh, which I'm... when it was still legal out of Sandoz. Okay. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, you know, who's to say, I mean, I, I didn't go deeply into where her therapist was getting, you know, getting his LSD. You know, perhaps he was connected there. I don't think he was. Oh, don't don't bother. Don't bother. I'm sure the source is gone. So you'd never be able to find any. Uh, this was, a, you know, an era when when LSD was still considered to be this huge miracle drug. It hadn't the, the bad press yeah. hadn't started yet. Uh, there's, a, there's a great book called Acid Hype, which is all about basically the period between Acid's invention and the time that Leary kind of comes on the scene and things get weird. Um, but for for so for Ronnie Gilbert, it was really a, a therapeutic thing. And, for, and she, you know, she talks in her memoir about this, but just about how valuable it was. It's being it's being touted as a therapeutic tool again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like reading about her experiences with it were fascinating. A lot a lot of them could be exactly the same reports that people are giving now in terms of sort of what she wanted to get out of it, what she got out of it and how it transformed her life. So all of her acid papers are there. And I read through them all and uh, God, it felt really invasive. Like, <laughs> I have to say it was I don't know, it was, you know, it was reading somebody's very it's not only like their personal report with their therapist, but their personal report while tripping with their therapist and like, yeah, really diving into their own psyche. Yeah, like really like, you know, dream analysis kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, very little I felt I mean, very little was at all relevant to the Weavers. Um, You know, I kind of only skimmed the surface of that for my book. But that was that was but that in some ways was also a a thing that I learned out of that was that when she was in LSD therapy um, and this is the, the, the era right before the Weavers broke up, which was 1964. Uh, But the Weavers were not an issue for her. They were not what she was in therapy to discuss. It was not anything that was troubling her. Well, I mean, I I think she knew very clearly at the time that the Weavers were maybe coming to an end. Run their course. There wasn't anything that came up that stressed her out or popped into her brain while she was tripping, which is, you know, I think their absence is fascinating in that regard. Um, and so she, in turn, recommended her therapist to Fred Hellerman, who, you know, the other junior weaver. The other weaver that we haven't talked about, yeah. Who, in turn, signed up. And uh, there's actually an account of, um, this is, you know, definitely early LSD therapy. So there's, you know, the models are all kind of, I don't think you'd probably get this model in a contemporary sense. But we're Ronnie uh, hanging out with Fred during one of his first trips. Um, which is getting an account of that was like super cool. <laughs> you know, they, they were friends from before the Weavers. They had been summer camp counselors together. So they were old buddies. And again, the Weavers don't come up at all in Fred's 
trip reports. But again, Jesse, let, let me let me stop you here just for one second yeah. because I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about Pete, uh, and 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 most people know uh, the story of Pete. He's obviously the most famous weaver. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about uh, Lee, um, yeah. and him from the South, uh, and and how he came up, and you know, the two of them uh, from the Almanac Singers. Uh, but I, I do want you to give us a little bit more background on uh, Ronnie Gilbert and Fred Hellerman. I'd love to. Thank you for asking. Um, they're from Brooklyn, both of them, more or less. Um, they came into Pete and Lee's lives in the course of uh, when Pete was running an organization called People's Songs uh, in the years after World War II. It was an idea of to tr- sort of basically try to, like, syndicate the Almanac singers. Like, you know, they'd be sort of the central clearinghouse for sending out songs. To you know, you need a you need a song. You're going on strike. You write to people songs. I'll send you some songs. Um, so they were both uh, Ronnie Gilbert and Fred Hellerman were both, you know, young after World War Two. Um, Fred was in the Coast Guard during the Army. Ronnie was working as a typist in in, D- in Washington, D.C. And they both become music fans. And for various reasons, um, Ronnie grew up very much in sort of the co- communist circles in Brooklyn. Fred did as well, slightly more peripherally. And they both fell into the people songs orbit. Uh, in the years after World War II. Um, Ronnie, yeah, Ronnie came from a, a, a socialist family. She's an, a, an incredible singer and often will actually, you know, she'll get pigeonholed as being the singer in the Weavers or, you know, because she hasn't played an instrument or being, you know, just the voice of the Weavers or the, the femme of the Weavers. That, and she always hated all of that because Ronnie was, like I said before, they were all equal band members and making creative decisions equally in terms of, the songs that they were choosing to perform and the way they were arranging them and the way they were presenting themselves on stage. And Ronnie was, you know, all four of them were, were part of that. So like when you talk about the weavers as a thing, she wasn't just the singer, she was a weaver. Um, Fred was probably the most, he was probably maybe the, the most politically disinterested of the weavers, which isn't to say he wasn't, you know, as his son told me, you know, he was right there, for all of the causes and it's not like he didn't believe in these things but he really his goal he wanted to be a musician um pete seeger was music obsessed and wanted to be you know that was his life goal as well but he always had this sort of political fire behind it fred just wanted to be a musician and ultimately after the weavers went on to be an important folk pop producer of the, of the late 50s and early 60s uh produced alice's restaurant for arlo guthrie um right. Uh, played on the the first Joan Baez record, um, which was you know an enormous, just incredible, incredible success that transformed American folk. Oh, the handoff! It was it was the handoff from one generation. Yeah, to another. Fred Fred was there for that. But you know, in the Weavers, he was kind of the sort of in some ways the junior man, but a really fascinating guitar player, just from a musical point of view. Always these like really interesting moving guitar parts, moving like busy, not you know also hopefully moving emotionally, but cool arrangements. Um, you know, great year for songs and, 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 uh, you know, as, as after Pete, Pete left the band in 1958, um, at which point sort of Fred became kind of a less junior member of the band. He was really being singled out more so than the others, uh, after the house on American activities, uh, committee, yeah, um, yeah. uh, brought him in to testify and we'll get into that in a second, but. So wrap up the, the, the research question. I just want to finish up because there's some really cool yeah, stuff with Fred yeah. and move along. Fred's stuff came from two different places. Um, one from his son, uh, Caleb, who's a little bit older than me, but we're, you know, very much of kind of the same musical tastes. And it's, you know, Caleb is a fan of Yola Tango and a huge fan of the dead and obviously a huge fan of the Weavers. So we had, we had lots <laughs> oh, of Oh, yeah, it became fast friends, I'm sure. 
We did, we did. Um, and you know, he's a news producer. Caleb is is super, super cool. Um, so he had boxes of letters from Fred, mostly his Coast Guard stuff. He also had a really cool journal that Fred kept. Probably, I'm, I'm, it's undated, but I'm almost positive it was like from right when the Weavers were signing their first record contract. And he, had, it seems like he sort of sat down and kind of like wrote down their history up to that point, which is different you know, in some regard from how they would, the band would tell their history after they got famous. Ah, the mythology. So yeah, a exactly. more, more real, uh, a, a realist take. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that was super, super interesting to find. Um, and also Fred had a home studio. So if he had the original reels, I, we couldn't find them because Fred passed away and a lot of stuff was in boxes, but he did, he transferred everything to, uh, his live Weaver's recordings to dat tape, <laughs> that great, uh, that great preservational medium. So I had this whole Caleb sent me home with, you know, like 30 dat tapes worth of stuff, which the next goal was to then find a way to get the dat tapes into a medium I could listen to. So I used my deadhead training and I hooked up with an old taper friend, uh, Scott Bernstein, who friend to many deadheads and many tapers, uh, helped me transfer those. And that was, you know, this whole rich array of stuff which included, uh, like, I think a wire recording, or it came off, I think it came off of a wire recording of their very first, or not their very first, but of an early show at the Village Vanguard before they signed, which has, like, Goodnight Irene with the original verses. It had a bunch of their recordings that I'm pretty sure uh, Vanguard Records made, because they, they're, they're really exceptionally good sound quality, live recordings from uh, from Town Hall, mostly, in New York that were just like really vivid wow. sound quality. Mm -hmm. um, and those were, you know, those were really cool to listen to. Cause there's been Weaver's live albums, but they've all been pretty severely edited. And it was really illuminating for me as a live, you know, a constant live music fan of both going to live music and listening to live music, recordings of live music to be able to hear an unedited show with all sort of the, the pauses and just the rhythm of it. And, oh yeah, they're playing two sets and oh, they're, you know, this is what's happening at set break. And like, just to know, to, to understand the flow of it was great. And then finally with Fred, there was a, uh, a collector named Barry Ullman, who is uh, the world's foremost uh, Woody Guthrie collector, actually, oh. and had lots of Woody Guthrie stuff, but also uh, a tour journal of Fred's from the first National Weavers tour, where, again, it's like this incredibly detailed, it's like this incredibly detailed look at a very tiny, like six-month slice of Weavers history where he's writing, you know, like every night, and then it just, that's the end of it. But those six months are amazing, like getting and it's like a really interesting six months to get even so where there's like band fights and kind of the beginning of the blacklist era. And it's an incredible window. So those are that most of my unusual sources. There might have been one or two others that I found. Very cool. So let's talk about their political slant and what that meant. Uh, yeah. especially at the time. Um, as we've said, you know, Pete Seeger was a, a member of the American Communist Party, uh, very different than the Soviet style of, of communism that people think of, and we can talk about that. Um, as you said, Lee was kind of just hanging out at the parties. Yeah, but not to say he wasn't political. He like No, he was no, no, no. But it, it's, it's funny. It's, you know, what I see is this attack by the right— on some 
you know, left-leaning uh, people that are maybe advocating for socialism, uh, 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 maybe a harder form of socialism uh, than uh, had existed. Um, let's face it, um, you know, uh, FDR and uh, a lot of the uh, implementations that he made in his administration during the Great Defi- Depression were socialism. We still have them today. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's not too far from that uh, 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 American left that we really are talking about. It just gets wrapped up in this, you know, Soviet totalitarianism, which is, you know, barely communism, if you ask me. But am I too far off on that from what what no, what the weavers were? Yeah, that's very that's very accurate. So, the, you know, like I said before, the American left was this enormous spectrum in the years before World War Two and FDR and the New Deal were you know, in a lot of ways, American, American socialism and the weavers and their, you know, let's just say their comrades, like the goal of what they were doing was to try to push that needle further to the left yeah. in terms of what workers rights, uh, uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the income inequality that, uh, that existed, uh, uh back then, uh, especially, yeah. you know, pre depression America, uh, with the robber barons. And, uh, you know, we, we, we don't want to go back to the beginning of the country, but you know, this has been the land of the haves and the haves nots from the very beginning. Yeah. And so the weavers and really the almanac singers and, and, Pete especially grew out of what was called sort of the popular front, which was this very, maybe the, you know, America, uh, what is it? Communism is 20th century Americanism. That was the slogan. And it was, you know, it was this notion that the workers' culture, you know, and this is very much grown from communist ideals, the workers' culture was to be celebrated and was really the fabric of culture at large, which I... It was. It should be. You know, that is the great majority of this country. And if you're going to have a democracy, which is dependent on an intelligent and an educated and informed populace, um, everybody's not going to be rich, but they are a part of the system and they need to be celebrated. And a lot of the art of the 20th century is really geared towards that audience, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So the Weavers were not like where they were coming out of. It was not terribly surprising that there would be, you know, this this far left wing stuff. It wasn't like they were coming out of like, you know, someplace far off and crazy. That there was like all of a sudden these yeah. left wing pop singers. It was very much part of that continuum. At the same time, there was something, you know, edgy about it, I guess. Um, I can't remember who made this comparison, but um, just to say that this wasn't my formulation. Um, somebody compared Pete Seeger joining the Communist Party when he did to, you know, burning a draft card. It was it was a statement to join the Communist Party, definitely. But a lot of what the Red Scare entailed, like meaning, you know, what really began after FDR was out of office was revenge politics. And that's another place where you really see the parallels between then and now. The idea that there was this party in power with these dominant ideas and ideals that they were successful in changing the American culture uh, quite yeah. radically uh, after 1933. Yeah. And then you have this other group of people who find that completely repugnant for sometimes logical reasons that actually do have to do with, you know, systems of government and whatever, but oftentimes are not logical. Um, no, it's hair, it's hair on fire fear uh, when, when, when you get right down to it. And that turns into things like loyalty oaths yeah. and these, these like insane pledge of allegiances. Uh, yeah, all that kind of stuff. You know, uh, uh, mottos being changed on currency, all kinds of things. Yeah, and and that's where the weavers would kind of get caught in the crossfire. Is that they're coming out as these pop stars at this sort of 
<laughs> yeah, pop you know, stars. Exact, yeah, they were. They were pop stars. Moment where that being, you know, torn down. It's yeah, so, you were on the wrong side of the of the the line when they redrew the lines. Basically, you know, one of the things, you know, there. I obviously I wrote a book about this. There's lots of things I find interesting about the Weavers' music, but you know, the Weavers' left wing pop stars, but at the time weren't drawing attention to themselves as left wingers. It's not like they were using their like left wing communist edginess to try to like make an impression on the pop charts. They were actually trying to do the almost complete opposite of that and like sort of take all these popular front ideals and sort of fold them into this notion of pop music that could then get that across in a more subliminal way that wasn't beating people over the head. They, you know, their goal was to not, not be preachy. Not be preachy, you know, sing pop songs, but at the same time, it's like you're tapping your foot along to a pop song. And it's like, oh, wait, this is a, you know, a, a black song from apartheid South Africa, you know, that kind of thing. Like, where you like planting that idea that like there's this valuable music coming from oppressed people and maybe these people shouldn't be oppressed. And that song, you know, that I'm sort of subtweeting there, I guess, is, uh, is Wim Away, which became The Lion Sleeps Tonight, which is a South African song. That's right. That's right. Song that we can't ever possibly escape from. And I'm, you know, is, you know, one of the first things so many people mention when I talk about the lyrics. Oh, God, that song. Well, we but, <laughs> yeah, but at the time, that was. Now it's stuck in my head. Thank you very much, Jesse. I really appreciate that. I love that song. <laughs> but the, oh, so the Weaver's song, if you've never heard the Weaver's version of Wim Away, of before it was The Lion Sleeps Tonight, yeah. I really think you should. I mean you, and I mean you, and you, and yes, you, and you. The, and you. the, the oh, audience, yes. Go back and uh, listen to that particular version. Because it's bef the, the, the whole Lion Sleeps Tonight thing isn't there. It's just this wordless, cool thing with this Pete Seeger doing this, like, really strange, like, alien falsetto wordless vocal part. And it's not the Lion Sleeps Tonight. It's Wim Away. It's this Pete Seeger in this very kind of awkward privileged 1950s way trying to, tra you know, but also earnest and not racist, trying to translate this strange South African pop song into something that that his band can play in New York. And it's, you know, done with total enthusiasm, um, which isn't to say there weren't, you know, there wasn't colonial wreckage <laughs> in the wake of him doing this. Um, <laughs> but it's this very singular musical product. Like, it's special. Like, I think that's a really... Like more than anything else, the Weavers did that ver whim away. I'll qualify this not the version that was on the charts because that had like a whole string arrangement and you know pop thing by Gordon Jenkins. But like the the live version of whim away is is really just the singular piece of art. It's like ninety seconds long and it's really it's it's to me it's something special in that it's mysterious and beautiful and cool and catchy. And yet folds in like this this notion that pop music from South Africa is something that that we should be interested in. That's something that's valuable, that's unique, that's something that we don't have otherwise, that that's where it's from. And, th and that the people making it happen to be living under like really brutal social conditions. Um, Not too dissimilar from those in the South. Yeah, right. Exactly. It, which was another. And really, that's the politics of the Weavers, right? It's social justice. Uh, it's workers' rights, um, and it's a uh, uh, peaceful coexistence on a global scale. I, I think that's really the th three things that they really advocated, not some sort of takeover of the United States government or the destruction of capitalism. Right. Well, but then another thing you see that maybe it's a parallel 
probably just continuity is this idea of like globalist. Like that's a slur. Like that's still a slur. That was right. like, that's like one of those things that you said, I don't I can't even remember who is accusing who of being a globalist, but it's happened in the last six months. I'm positive. The, the idea that you, you know, are for a better planet and not just a better country or, yeah. or, or inter- interconnectedness with, uh, with uh, at least our species, if not all the rest of the species. Yeah, And that, that was a really, important part of the weavers for me was kind of connecting to music culture around the world. Um, I did get to interview Pete Seeger 2004 ish, I guess. Um, basically we ended up writing a couple of postcards back and forth afterwards. Like he asked me to send him a copy of the interview and he sent me a postcard back that has like, I'm just going to grab it because it's right here. Cause I always keep it on my desk because I like having a postcard from Pete Seeger on my desk. I bet this list of like, I've, I've posted this on Twitter and it's like, you know, maybe 30 or 40 items, how to build a global community. And right at the top of the list are like things like imagine other cultures through poetry and through their poetry and novels, listen to music. You don't understand dance to it, you know, things like that. And, you know, it's these, all these things that are probably a little more mainstream ideas now that, you know, in this, in this current age. Um, but really realizing that that was the, where, how I began to discover that, part of you know how music connected was a thing that connected cultures around the world that there was you know i'm a music fan here in the united states but there's people like me who are also music fans um in every country in the world interacting with the music near them in ways probably similar to the ways that i'm interacting with it they're starting bands they're going to shows they're you know all that and that was that was you know, that's again, that's Pete Seeger. That that was that that's Pete teaching people. So by 1953, the group was one of the biggest in the land. Uh, very popular on radio and playing large crowds in theaters. Uh, they've had numerous hit records, uh, but then the hammer drops. Um, they're blacklisted. Um, so my question is, did they understand this immediately, or did it have to dawn on them? Um. It was a little of both. Like, they knew that this could happen. The Almanac Singers had gotten blacklisted, or basically they more or less had to break up. And the Almanac Singers had sort of been on the verge in 1942. They'd had some national radio airplay, and then their backstory kind of came out and fell apart. So they they knew Pete and Lee had felt very vividly, had been through this before. And when they were going through the Weavers, they, you know, they saw the same people and the same power brokers and the same whatever— it had been there in the pop music industry 10 years before when the pop music industry had dropped them unceremoniously. So they, they were really, they knew what they were getting into in that sense. Um, and there was this push and pull between the Weavers and kind of the right wing media. There were these kind of underground, not underground, uh, but these newsletters that were sort of, that was really what the black the, was. The, the Fox News of the day. Yeah, well, uh, counterattack was this mm-hmm. newsletter. It was that was basically the closest the blacklist had in the in the music industry to being a, an actual list of people on paper, of musicians that or or actors or actresses or whatever that you shouldn't employ because they had these affiliations. Um, you know, and this, this is a published by ex FBI agents. It's it's a racket, and you know you can you know some people could pay them off. There was you know all this all these different ways of dealing with it. So, you know, there's like these traces of like the Weavers, one of the Weavers managers going over and trying to like negotiate with the, you know, counterattack. And one solution they reached temporarily was that they're not going to, you know, yes, they're going to continue being the Weavers, but they're not going to speak out about political issues. And that destroyed Pete Seeger. That's, you know, he, he that was very painful for him that to be in this enormous band and have the most success of his life. And then, yeah, this this big megaphone and not be able to. To, to speak your own mind, right? 
yeah, the other Weavers sort of were, were more okay with it and sort of felt like they, they had achieved the success. They felt like they had all, you know, like I was saying, you know, all this stuff coded into their music that the music would, would do the, the, you know, do the work. So they agree to the compromise, but Pete doesn't. And that really starts to like pull the band apart in, in ways more so than they'd been than before. Um, even as they're becoming an enormous success. And you could see this in Ronnie's and Ronnie's correspondence that you read. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And in, in all their, in Lee's correspondence, mm-hmm. Fred's journals, it's like the pervasive issue right. in the is, is this. And even before they had their first hit single, they had, they were offered a radio show. Um, you know, one of the, this is the days when like, yeah, you know, like the Carter family or what have you. radio mm-hmm. show. And you, in their case, it was, uh, Van Camp Baked Beans. It was going to be like the Van Camp Baked Beans Weaver's Hour or something like that. And I, I don't, I don't, remember, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly how Van Camp found out about the Weaver's past, but you know, pulled the plug on that. But this was before they had any charting singles. They knew it was already happening. Like even when they were on the top of the charts from the very start, they knew they were on kind of borrowed time or limited time or that. Well, certainly by forty, somehow, like they talk all, all four of them yeah. talk about like, you know, like this is what we were trying to do and somehow it actually happened and we don't know quite how we made it national and made it past like the gatekeepers in that way. And so that whole, those whole two or three years where they're popping records onto the charts and they had a ton of top 10 hits. They had probably, I can't remember, it's like 10 or like, let's say 10 songs in the top 10 within, you know, that two year period. Yeah. They were they like a big, 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 big band. And not, you know, not just like a number one band, but like Goodnight Irene, which was their first really widespread hit, or I guess sort of their second one. Um, there are articles about how like that song, like even sort of changed the game, like immediately, like it was kind of the, you know, changed the kind of songs that people were singing. It changed, you know, the way songs were being arranged. Like they had like an immediate musical impact before even the political stuff kind of came out. Um, but so those whole two, three years, it's always, that's kind of the undercurrent, like Pete Seeger's writing these letters to his manager there. He always would sign his letters with a little illustration of a banjo and he like wrote one with like a ball and chain attached to it. It's kind of sad. <laughs> like, like, Oh, come on, man. We'll be okay. Um, though at the time, you know, you couldn't say that you couldn't say that it was going to be okay. Like we like their friends were getting arrested and thrown in jail, like the guy who co-wrote wasn't that a time. Walter Lowenfels was thrown in jail. Um, there's a lot. There's you know he's a complicated story. We won't get into him right now. But um, the threat was real. You know they were all three fourths of the Weavers were were called before uh, called to testify before the House on American Committees uh, committee. Uh, Ronnie, all four of them were served with papers at various points. Like it, that the hara- like all four of them were were physically uh, harassed by people who were either representatives of the government or claiming to be representatives of the government like you know you couldn't necessarily tell who who is who in those days um so you know they would be on tour and they were being being harassed you know in the lobbies of hotels and you know things like that so it's um yeah it was constant and and it wasn't just like you know the hammer did come down but it was sort of like a there, there there was a slow motion to it there was like you know they would start losing gigs you know you know mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't just like one day they couldn't get gigs. It was kind of over the course of 1952, like the beginning of 1952, they're playing sort of bigger places. And then by the end of 1952, they can't get any gigs at all. And that's sort of when it really dissolves. They play like one last show in New York where obviously they can get a gig, though 
there's like a billboard story about how they're the first left wing band to ever lose a gig in New York because of political affiliations, um, which was which was around then, too. Um, yeah. So by the end of 52, they're basically done. And then the next few years, they're just sort of in the wilderness. Pete kind of begins his own like DIY sort of folk punk career playing under the radar gigs. Uh, Fred changes his name. Uh, not legally, but it starts writing songs under the name Fred Brooks. Lee is a fatalist, basically. Well, he he became he, he started writing sort of uh, short stories, mystery short stories. Uh, so that was one way he supported himself. Ronnie got married, moved to California. Her husband was a dentist. She tried being a house mom for a few years and turned out she wasn't really fit for that. Um, <laughs> not surprising. And Ronnie, I wish I could have hung out with Ronnie. She's, I, I'll mention this again, she is so super cool. Like, she just comes off as, like, of the four Weavers, like, all four of them seem like, you know, I would I would enjoy their company. Mm -hmm. But Ronnie seems like the one who's who's actually the coolest. <laughs> yeah. Um, just her just her attitudes about things and and her just general demeanor. She's always had a, a, a positive vibe and an interesting spin on things, you know, not in any like automatic pilot kind of way. She's just. <laughs> Ronnie's cool. Awesome. So on August 15th, 1955, Seeger's hauled before the House Un-American Activities Committee, and he doesn't plead the fifth. He does uh, not. But like the Hollywood 10 in 1950, he asserts the First Amendment. Um, so in, uh, in, in 1957, Pete was indicted for contempt of Congress, put on trial in 1961, convicted and sentenced to 10 years. And then what happened? It then gets off on a technicality, basically, and he was really bummed about that, that, he, that that's that his case couldn't be a precedent, that he was dismissed, you know, for some reason, really not having anything to do with what he was trying to protest by taking the first to begin with. Um, the whole notion of taking the First Amendment versus taking the Fifth Amendment is really um, during the Red Scare uh, is fascinating to look back at, but also um illustrates kind of the weavers itself lee hayes had testified two days before pete and took the fifth right uh the idea of taking the fifth amendment was you know it's the right against self-incrimination lee was basically happy to be done with it he didn't want anything to do with it and pete being pete and an idealist his general notion was that not you can't ask me this question you can't ask anybody these questions go screw yourself um rightfully and, and, he, and he wanted and yeah rightfully and and he wanted to go push that as far as he could. And it's that's, you know, the same way that the Weavers had this kind of little limited like spectrum in which to express themselves via the pop culture of the 50s. This idea, the, the you know, you read through people's um, House on american testimonies and it's like, you know, these people, these artists, these actors, these, you know, creative people um, attempting to express themselves through this very narrow confines of, of the House on american committee, you know, of what amendment you're going to plead and how you're going to how you're going to put yourself across and how you're going to respond to their kind of inane bureaucratic questions um, and how you're going to carry yourself. And it's, you know, I, I'm sure people have done <laughs> deeper writing about this than than that. But um, it was it was interesting to me to sort of see both Pete and Lee and sort of how they came across. But also, you know, kind of like, you know, residually ended up reading other people's testimonies. And it's, you know, Shame, shameful period of, of American history. Just yeah, dastardly. Yeah. Uh, just you know, uh, trying to delve into you know somebody's soul 
and what they think, uh, which is, you know, supposed to be the promise of this country is that, uh, you know, this is supposed to be, uh, you know, a political arena of ideas and may the best idea win through democracy. And I don't see anybody, anybody who was hauled before the House Un-American Activities Committee to uh, ever uh, be doing anything other than expressing themselves as uh, things that uh, people should consider. Uh, And that's about it. Yeah. Absolutely. But um, yeah, it's, it's so he gets off of the technicality uh, and he's unhappy, but becomes an American legend. Yes, you know, that, of course. That's... Of course. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, so so he um, I think uh, now before the 61 conviction, uh, they actually did get together. And didn't they go to to the UK in about 1958? Is that right? Yeah, that was that was after Pete had left the group. Um, oh, it, it was okay. So it was Lee and uh, Eric Darling, who was Pete's replacement. Who's oh, that, which is an amazing. It's sort of a less discussed period of the band because Pete's not in it. But musically speaking, the, the that era of the Weavers is really really cool. Uh, Eric was an amazing banjo player, very different from Pete. Um, extremely disciplined, but also extremely soulful. And I, I really, I love that, that era of the Weavers. Um, that's one that I wish there were more live recordings of, honestly. Um, well, I find it interesting that they go to England during the skiffle craze, yeah, um, they, which is, you know, some of this, they're, they're now beginning to influence the coming rock and roll age. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, you know, uh, Fred during, again, I think it was during the blacklist actually, um, backed Lonnie Donegan, uh, in New York, when Lonnie Donegan was, um, you know, Ronnie Donegan. Oh yeah, the, yeah, uh, Rock Island, Rock Island Line, yeah, Rock Island Line, yeah. or the hit version of Rock Island Line. Yeah. Man, I don't know if you've read, but that Billy Bragg book about Skiffle is amazing. That was that was like one of those books that was like I I never really thought about what British pop culture was before the Beatles, um, and it was like. Billy Bragg just dug in hard into what Skiffle was. Oh, it's um, in our library. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's great. Um, but yeah, so it's, so yeah, they only sort of overlap with Skiffle when they were over when they visited um, the Weavers. There's a lot of inertia going on with the Weavers by by the later part. Um, Lee's, you know, was in in a lot of ways after Pete left was sort of the central figure because he's sort of this, you know, the elder statements, uh, state uh, statesman, right? Man. But you know. The, the alcoholism is definitely starting to creep up. Um, he's definitely becoming more obstinate and more argumentative. Um, there's just this general inertia with the Weavers uh, in that era where they're not they're not totally firing in all the ways they could be firing. No, there's there's actually a, a fairly tantalizing mention in Lee's one of Lee's letters from Europe that I wish I could find more details about. Um, where he's, he's writing to Harold Leventhal, who's the Weaver's manager, and he's like, oh, yeah, the other guys, they all went out and jammed at the Skiffle Clubs last night with younger musicians that didn't invite me. But I couldn't find any other reference to that. Um, so they, I, I take that back. There was some interaction. But I actually just don't know what it was in that era. Um, but that, you know, the, the Weaver's really, yeah, plugging into the early rock and roll stuff um, all kinds of ways. Um I, was, I actually just thought about this a second ago when we were talking about Pete being uh, arrested. Um, that era of young musicians looked at the Weavers' folk music as authentic, not because they were like, you know, authentic, you know, Lee was from the South, but not because they were like, you know, authentically singing the songs of the Appalachian Mountains, but they were authentic American radicals that had been blacklisted and, you know, hauled before the committee. Um, I spoke with Bridget Meyer, who's Jerry Garcia's girlfriend, when yeah. Jerry was mm-hmm. uh, 19 and... Uh, 
if you've seen the Long Strange yep. Trip documentary, yep. that's she's interviewed in there, and they, she plays a little example of, the, of of a tape of her birthday party of of Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter playing at her at her 16th birthday. Um, and she told me about yeah, that was we thought they were they, the Weavers were authentic. Uh, we hate we did not like that we thought the Kingston Trio, who were the big big folk at top the time, of right. time, were bogus, and the Weavers were the real deal. Um, and you know that was. You look that the full version of that party tape of Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter playing at that party is the majority of those songs came out of the Weavers repertoire. Uh, you can hear somebody requesting Wim Away. Uh, Bridget told me, oh, yeah, Hunter, he did it. He was definitely he was known for his version of, of Wim Away. He would do the uh, I think he would do that high that high falsetto part that I was mentioning before that that, that Pete, Pete sang. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but you see the Weavers pop up in all these places where. Their influences on bands where you don't necessarily see that in the same way. You know, the the the, the Dead went on. You know, they covered lots of folk music, but they really the Weavers were kind of their doorway into folk music. It's not that they were covering Goodnight Irene or whatever. They were covering Jerry. You know, sort of discovered the you know the Pete Seeger was a doorway into the broader world of folk music, that kind of thing. And David David Crosby is another person who I talked to who's an enormous Weavers fan, but he said for him the political thing didn't have anything to do with why he was a Weavers fan, even though his dad was left-wing and blacklist, a blacklisted film uh, maker, a cinematographer. Um, but Crosby was like, yeah, I just love the way they sang. Their harmonies just grabbed me. So it's, you know, they, they had all of these... They're, they're kind of the precursors to... I mean, you know, let's face it, though. You know, I find it interesting that they they um, they end in 1964, you know, which is, you know, just as the folk revival is uh, getting to be huge. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's giant there. Uh, oh, and, and they're obviously a precursor to uh, to to that. Yeah. And there's I mean, it's, you know, one of the things about it is that there's I was going to say kind of in ways similar, maybe in some ways to the dead, that there's all these different ways to approach them and to be engaged by them and one of them is politics and counterculture and and, and protest and that another is just they're great singers you know and yeah. they're basically they they have this sound that's fascinating but another one is that they're you know all these songs are coming from these like deeply you know if not quite fully scholarly but like really deeply thought out places you know around the world like there's you know they were they were a really deep band you know they weren't just this one-dimensional you know they're one-dimensional 50s novelty act that happened to make these folk songs into enormous hits but they there was a real depth um to what they were doing and intentionality and that's you know rediscovering that was powerful that like it was like i've coming in contact with this creative thing that these four people made together uh, that is still valid and still interesting even if the music itself sounds kind of dated like the project as a whole is still really is still really alive and that's that was great <laughs> finding that like it's, it's it can be really powerful to discover lineage or, or history and, and feel connected to, to to your own past and i feel you know i felt connected to the weavers before i started doing this book because of you know yeah your, your upbringing as we established yeah mm -hmm. but, but after finishing it it's like you know there's there's the line and and um when the saints go marching in about you know traveling in the footsteps of those who came before you know not new sentiment at all but it's such an extraordinarily powerful feeling to really for me and i'm thinking you know, this is an entirely personal thing to feel connected to that in some way to see that these things that these things that are happening right now around me and these organizations and these causes and these people are just this part of this long 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 thing and that this 
fight versus this, this fight is it's never ending, but it's also something that can be celebrated and is, is, is cool and is a wonderful thing to be a part of um, when you think of it in terms of this, the long arc of, of history in a nonviolent way, <laughs> you know, it's, it is a fight that I'm proud to be consider myself to be sort of part of in, in my own, you know, <laughs> in my own, in my own historical music writing kind of way. Yeah. So, you know, in 1952, we've established that, that the blacklist of the Weavers uh, began, um, you know, um, you know, Pete uh, goes to trials convicted. Uh, luckily, he gets off on a technicality, um, but he is still blacklisted on radio and television until finally about 1967 when he appears uh, solo uh, on the Smothers Brothers show. Right. And he's finally embraced as the liberal minstrel that he always was. Not before getting blacklisted one more. He got the plug pulled one final time before, on the Smothers Brothers before making it through. <laughs> but yeah, finally there. <laughs> he goes on to wider fame uh, and to his dying day in 2014 at the age of 94. Uh, never wavered from his conviction um his story is well known uh but what about the other three can you relay their history after pete left the group for us and and what happened to uh to uh ronnie and, and lee and fred yeah sure so they um the weavers continued on until 1963 um they uh had a couple of banjo players uh eric darling replaced pete Frank Hamilton replaced Eric Darling. And then for the last year, Bernie Krause, who would actually go on to become a pretty famous Hollywood synth player and pioneer of um, like field recording and, and acoustic ecology. Uh, he was the last banjo player in the band. He's, you know, sort of one of the last chapters of the book. And he's still around. He was an amazing person to talk to. I don't want to oh, spoil anything about the last chapters of no, the book, but, no but he, he contributed a lot to those. Uh, so... One of the big reasons the Weavers broke up was just that Lee Lee couldn't function. He was an alcoholic and he was not doing well um, and had a lot of other emotional um, and physical issues probably tied all into each other. Um, so he was kind of the reason the band broke up and their breakup was sort of foisted upon them by Harold Leventhal, their manager, who sort of couldn't deal with it anymore, I think. At that same moment, I'll point out, Peter, Paul, and Mary had an enormous hit with the Hammer song, If yeah. I Had a Hammer, mm -hmm. uh, which basically allowed Lee to then retire because that gave him a get the royalties off that, right? Yeah. So I, it's hard to you know pin that down and say that's why Harold finally pulled the plug, but I think that's probably why Harold finally pulled the plug. So Lee's later years are kind of depressing. He, he, he didn't really do much. Um, started a bunch of projects, never really finished them. Eventually moves up to Croton-on-Hudson, uh, in New York. He'd been, also been in a children's band called the Babysitters, uh, who are sort of a pioneering children's folk band of their own, who sort of petered out kind of around the same moment the Weavers did, maybe a year or two later. Um, they made one or two more records. And but by the end of the 60s, he's not really part of the musical scene. He moves up to, like I said, he moves up the Hudson to Croton, which is not that far from where Pete lives in Beacon, but he's retired. And eventually they, the Weavers get back together because Lee is clearly in failing health. He, he's diagnosed with diabetes. Both of his legs have to get amputated. So he's that was the Weavers reunited in 1980, uh, the original four members of the Weavers. Um, that became a concert film, wasn't that a time? And then Lee passed away um, like seven months after that in the summer of 81. Um, Fred went on to a career really in folk pop. He was a producer. He, was, he had been an A&R guy at uh, Electra Records in the 50s. Oh, wait, is that right? Electra? Yeah. Um, in the late 50s, early 60s. And, you know, like I said, you know, played with Joan Baez, produced yeah. um, 
produced Arlo Guthrie, but kind of by the 60s and 70s and 80s, sort of moves a little bit more into the business end of things. He worked with Harold Leventhal, the Weaver's manager, and got, you know, really involved in, in publishing. And, you know, he continues to do musical projects and, you know, doing a soundtrack here and there. Uh, he produced a really great Pete Seeger record in 79, Circles and Seasons. Um, probably the most, to my ears, the most, like, contemporary sounding Pete Seeger solo record like it's it's the production holds up in a in a very understated way then Fred passed away a couple years ago but he continued on doing like local music stuff um mostly doing publishing Ronnie had a really interesting post Weavers life um by the time the Weavers broke up she had been starting to get involved in like theater in New York like underground experimental theater not you know fully crazy radical theater and got into that um I'm, I'm probably going to muddle some of the sequence of things here uh, but really just followed her personal muse in ways that were sometimes resulted in, you know, creative things on stage, but were really just, you know, just following her life. Uh, she got into like primal scream therapy at one point and became, a th uh, not a primal scream therapist, but became a therapist of her own, uh, moved to Canada at a certain point, uh, began a musical partnership with Holly Near, who's a, a feminist songwriter who who loved Ronnie's music and loved the Weavers and kind of began this sort of second musical career in the later 70s and early 80s touring and recording with with Holly Near which which overlaps a little bit with the Weavers reunion and that's um you know they do I think they do a Holly Near song on, in, in wasn't that a time and on the soundtrack um and continued that into the 80s and actually in the 80s um came out as gay yeah. Um, and continued to be politically radical, might have even been more politically radical than Pete Seeger in, a, <laughs> in later years, was investigated by the FBI for being uh, involved with a group called uh, Women in Black, which is probably a little too much to get into in, for, for this conversation, but um, continued just to be, like I said, Ronnie was extremely cool. Like, she was, I really, like, always reading her interviews, you know, in the 80s and in the 90s and wherever, she was just always extremely forthcoming and, smart and witty and and just always thinking about things from her own angle that's obviously really informed and and cool um and still writing you know all the we you know she and fred and pete were all in you know remained in in various forms of of communication through through the 80s and 90s that you see in her letters including her and pete continuing to argue about Wimaway and the, the royalties <laughs> of it and she's still you know she's basically like stop being like uh, you know basically stop being an airhead pete look this is actually how thing, you know you may have had good intentions but things got really screwed up um yeah like i said ronnie's cool um but yeah then she she passed away a couple years ago as well uh eric darling uh wrote a really amazing memoir uh it's very out of print and i think kind of expensive um and nor can i remember the name of it off the top of my head not a terribly catchy name, but it's a really great book if you want to go deeper into into the Weavers world. Um, and he was he, he was a, a really interesting guy. He ended his Weavers tenure by discovering Ayn Rand and and moving further away from oh. the, the, the deciding wow. that he could no longer be Weaver. And that, you know, I think there are other reasons as well. But that was he talked about that as being being a big one. So yeah, that was that was and there where they all are. The, for a couple. They think yeah. uh, the three of them got back together a few times. After Lee died, there are a couple of scattered Weavers uh, reunions. But yeah, brings us, you know, I think the last time I saw Pete Seeger play live was a, uh, like in person, was at a uh, anti-war march in 2003. And but you know, he, he was he was right there at Occupy Wall Street, singing singing with them, and he's you know he, he remained extremely active. Like he's oh he's yeah, Pete Seeger. yeah 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 right up till 
I, I, Pete has a skinny face. I think you could recarve Mount Rushmore without ruining the structure of the of, of the mountain <laughs> and, and, and replace. I don't know who you'd want to, re- replace a slave owner with Pete Seeger. Let's put it like that. <laughs> Not a bad idea. So where where is today's weavers? Is there one? Can there be one? Is is one needed? Yes, 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 and yes, but I don't totally know the specific answers of who they are. But I, I'm, you know, you're searching high and low. I'm sure. Yeah, or waiting alternate routes. Yeah, exactly. Or you know, if they're really a modern weavers, they'll make the pop charts, and I won't have to search at all. Like that's, <laughs> you know, um, right? Yeah, they're they're somewhere yeah. they're somewhere out there. But like I was saying, it's you know, some platform and genre. It's not. They're not going to be, you know, the same way the Beatles aren't going to be. A, Quartet from Liverpool. The, the new Weavers aren't going to be a you know no of course banjo not. guitar of course quartet. Not. No, it's going to be a hip hop group of some sort. Yeah, uh, you know, if if you do that, I can't but, say I'm uh, a SoundCloud rap aficionado <laughs> remotely, <laughs> other than you know having a fairly passive awareness of it. But um, that se- to me that seems like a, a world where the gatekeepers are are far enough down that somebody could slip through in a in a in a way that would be could, could really ripple out. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of music out there to comfort people, but not a lot of music to, that confronts people. And art should yeah, the, the, uh, at the, least do both. The Weavers confronted as well. There was definitely a lot of comfort and organizing and and you yeah, know they did. solidarity. That's you know that's I think that's a lot. There's protest music, which is one thing, but there's solidarity music, and that's you know as a, as important. I think ultimately the Weavers are probably more solidarity music than they were protest music. I think you're right. What's up next for you, Jesse? Oh, <laughs> clearing out my inbox. <laughs> um, I've I've been all kinds of deadlines <laughs> and projects of let's see liner notes for the dead and some art and some new, some art you know articles doing my radio show. I've you know have have some other book ideas in the hopper, but nothing I've nothing I've articulated enough to that I'm ready to talk about. But you know. All, all kinds of things. Staying, staying very busy. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good to hear. Jesse Jarno, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs and Rock today. I really appreciate, appreciate the, uh, the Deeper Dig. It's not just a clever name. <laughs> we'll be talking soon. One day, one day, I was walking along. I heard the midnight special. Singing a lonesome song Oh, let the midnight special Shine the light on me Oh, let the midnight special Shine the ever-loving light on me Well, now you wake up in the morning You hear the ding-dong ring And you go marching to the table You see the same damn thing Well, it's a sitting on the What a great story for us. Of course, the tree of rock and roll, which I truly believe is very much a story predominantly of the latter half of the 20th century, not surprisingly has deep roots in the early parts of the century. It had to come from somewhere, right? Uh, We need to understand the entire story. 
so that will occasionally lead us back in time and even into the present. Uh, we've done some shows on that and perhaps the future. Uh, we know blues, country, folk, and gospel are the main ingredients of uh, original rock and roll. But as the story unfolds, all types of music get thrown into the blender. Uh, so expect some digs into classical and jazz, as well as travels abroad to other cultural musical influences. Uh, as I've said, rock and roll is the first global art phenomenon to happen in real time. All right. I want to thank Jesse Jarnell for talking with us today. Uh, I was always a Pete Seeger fan, whether he threatened to cut the cables to Bob Dylan's first electric set or not at the Newport Folk Festival. I knew he was an American hero and respected musician. Uh, now I, I know the full story of the Weavers. So go grab Wasn't That a Time, The Weavers, The Blacklist, and The Battle for the Soul of America, uh, and you won't regret it. Okay, until next time, uh, have a good time, and, and, you know, do yourself a favor. Go, go listen to some music. All right. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a Pantheon podcast. Keep up the rockin'. This land is your land. the wrongs of social injustice oxfam america works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives develop long-term solutions to poverty and campaign for social change and we do it with the help of our friends in the music world the beatles were oxfam supporters back in the day so were the stones and through the years musicians and music fans have helped oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 